For most of you, you probably already know who I am, but just in case you don't, my name is Corlin Fair. I am the youth pastor apprentice here at the North Peace MB. Um, and so because of that, I get to teach the youth every single week, and I'm used to a lot of feedback because I ask questions that require feedback. So to get that out of my system, to make sure that I don't do that too much, does anyone know which book of the Bible we're studying right now? John, all right, hopefully that's out of my system and we can just get to it now. Um, so as most of you know, we're gonna be in John chapter 13 this week. Andrew finished up chapter 12 just before he left us on vacation. So I know some of you are probably like, we want Andrew, well too bad you get me this week. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be starting John chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 1 to 20. So this passage, as you guys know from chapter 12, we are navigating into an area where now we have gone from the public ministry of Jesus and we're going into the uh, private ministry of Jesus. And just a reminder, Bev's holding up the uh, kids' uh, bags things, the, the activity bags, that's what they're called, in the back. So if you want, you can send your kids now to go and get those before I forget. So, before we get going, I'm going to just pray really quick, and then we'll, we'll read the passage and dive into it. So, Father, thank you for today. Thank you so much for this opportunity to, to read from your word together as a congregation. Thank you, Lord, that you have uh, just brought us all together and brought us here. So, Father, I pray that through this time, you'd be softening our hearts to, to your Holy Spirit, that when you convict us, we'd have the courage and the strength to act on those convictions. Um, yeah, I pray that your, your spirit would be with us today, and, and thank you again for this time. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to just start by reading John chapter 13, 1 to 20, uh, and then we're going to go through it piece by piece and, and go into some application afterwards. So John chapter 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed the, their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The reading of God's word. So what better place than to shift from public ministry, like raising Lazarus from the dead, or the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, than to shift into a super intimate setting like a meal? It's, it's actually quite beautiful, and, and it's an artistic way of showing this, but it's also something that Jesus planned purposefully. So, verses 1 to 3 act as our setup for this scene. They give us the who, and the what, and the where. So we know that we're just before Passover. If you remember, at the start of chapter 12, it was six days before Passover. And so now within that chapter, we've come to the feast of Passover. And John isn't overly specific as to whether or not this is the Passover meal itself. And there's actually quite a bit of scholarly debate as to whether or not this is right during the Passover meal because he doesn't explicitly say it. But I think regardless of whether or not it is, we know that it is at Passover and that is of importance. Otherwise, John would not have stated it here. Uh, we see that Jesus knew that his uh, hour had come. This should clue us in because throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, we've seen that his hour had not yet come, and so he evades being arrested consistently or evades questioning consistently because he's able to slip away. But at this point, we see Jesus knowing that his hour had come. And so also, he appears to know, not just appears to know, he does know that Judas Iscariot is going to be betraying him, that the devil had already put it into his heart, into Judas's heart to do this. Now, you might be surprised, you might not. There's actually a lot of scholarly debate as to what's going on here with, with Judas and the devil. Um, and again, I think the important aspect of this is that Judas and the devil are in conspiracy together against Christ. And I don't mean conspiracy in the sense of it might be true, it might not be true. I mean that there is a serious, harmful plan to Jesus from Judas and the devil. So with the setup, we know we're at Passover. We know that Jesus had been given all things, which is an important key for, for later on. Uh, and we know that Judas is going to betray him. We also see that Jesus had loved his disciples until the very end here. And so after verse 3, we go into verse 4. And this is where kind of our, the bulk of our passage takes place. This is where the action takes place for today. So we see that Jesus gets up and he takes off his outer garment and he grabs a towel and he wraps it around his waist and he gets a bowl of water and, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. As he's doing this, we're not told which disciple he approaches first. And I don't think that that is necessarily of importance, but we know that once he gets to Peter, Peter questions him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And he's questioning the action here of foot washing, not that he's washing Peter's feet himself, although that is part of the question. It's not the main focus of it. It's this act that Jesus is doing that Peter is questioning. So if you'll remember from a couple weeks ago, Andrew talked to us about foot washing. And that's highly important to understand why Peter is questioning this here. Foot washing back then was something that was completely customary and it would have been expected. You see, as they traveled, they didn't own a Ford F-150 to make it everywhere they were going for supper, so they would have walked. They also didn't own vehicles or have vehicles, which means that they would have had horses and other animals doing the carrying of any weight for them. 
which means their roads were probably not that great, if you can imagine. So as they're walking, they pick up dirt and debris from everything, and they start to sweat. It's a very warm climate. It's not like they're walking in minus 40 like they are here in Fort St. John. So they're walking. They're getting warm. They're getting sweaty. The dust is sticking to them. If there happens to be any other debris on the road, it's sticking to their feet. And so then when they come to a meal like this, what they would do is, is they actually lay basically reclined on each other where their heads would be right close to their sternum area and their feet would be right close to the other's head. And this kind of blows our minds because we usually sit in a chair and if anyone leans onto another person at a meal, we think that that's a really awkward display of public affection. In this case, this is how they ate every single time. So it makes sense that you would want your feet washed before you would join each other for a meal. Just practically speaking, it makes sense. So then why is Peter asking this question? If this is something that's normal, this shouldn't surprise us. For us, it might be weird. It's weird enough when we go to someone's wedding and they wash each other's feet. It's not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but we think that's awkward. But we see Peter's response. He's actually willing to state that this should maybe not be happening. So why is that? The role of washing the feet was almost always reserved for the person themselves to do for themselves, or the owner of the house or whoever was preparing the food would have a servant or a slave do it. It was a very lowly position, which makes sense. You're washing someone's feet. It's not going to be the king's honor to do such a thing. But we see Jesus doing that here. So Peter asks him, why are you doing this? And, and Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you will. And Peter ref- responds to him quite, quite harshly, I think. And he says, you'll never wash my feet. Again, it's important not to emphasize the my in this sentence, but Peter is, is very blatantly saying that this will never happen. My teacher, my rabbi, my Lord will never do this for me. I will never put him in a position of, of service like this to me. It's wrong. And then Jesus, I think, kind of throws that upside down uh, and says, if, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And I can't imagine Peter's response in, like internally. We hear what he says. We see what he says. But internally, can you imagine? You've come to this point where you say, no, you can't do this, Jesus. And Jesus throws what you've said on its head. I can't imagine the stirrings that are going on in Peter's heart here. But also, we see classic Peter respond in a classic Peter way. If you know the Gospels, you'll know that he's quite the character when it comes to his responses and the way that he navigates life. And so then he goes completely the other way and says, well, if I have no part in you, if I don't let you wash my feet, then don't just do my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So now he wants Jesus to wash all of him, a a full bath, just completely the other way. And so it's interesting here is Jesus, I, I believe, uses his authority here and, and centers Peter again in the sense of, of correcting him. And he clarifies and he says that the one who is bathed is clean. You don't need to wash your hands and your head over and over again. It's just the feet that we need to wash. All of you are clean. And here he's talking about his disciples specifically. Uh, but not all of you, he clarifies. And he says this because he knows that Judas is going to be betraying him. 
So I think that this here uh, is one of those things where we look at that and we think that makes sense. They've had a bath, they're clean. But what is Jesus, what is the underlying meaning? Because we see here even that Peter is not understanding that there's maybe more depth to this. We've seen throughout the gospel already that when Jesus interacts with different individuals, they get stuck on the surface level. They get stuck on the physical acts in front of them and they can't see any further. And here we see Peter doing the very same thing. So what is Jesus actually getting at? And I believe that what he's getting at is our salvation. We know that from earlier in, in Matthew, uh, Peter confesses Jesus as Lord. He says, th th it's that interaction where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says that you are the Christ, the Messiah. So Peter knows who he is, and that's what makes him clean. And so Jesus is using a physical example to try and connect these dots. But again, classic humans, we get way too distracted by the physical in front of us. And so we see, starting in verse 12, this is where the explanation starts. Jesus actually does go back and explain his actions to his disciples. Uh, and so we have the action up to verse 12. Verse 12 is where it shifts. Um, in verse 12, Jesus says, or it says here, sorry, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? And he doesn't just leave us hanging there, he actually does explain. And he says, you call me teacher and Lord and, and rabbi, and, and you're right, because I am. And so, if I, your authority figure in this, in this position, have done this for you, if I have washed your feet or served you like this, should you not do this as well? And he gives a couple examples, one of which is a really, really common one back then, which was, a servant is not greater than his master. Uh, they would have known this uh, just practically speaking, and even for us, it makes sense. If you, at work, try to do something against your boss that your boss has not asked you to do, there's going to be consequences for it. Your authority has the ability to tell you what to do and what not to do. You're not greater than your boss. And if you are the boss, the people underneath you in that scenario are not greater than you. You know that. That's the way this works. And that's the, the concept that he's pulling from here is that your master is not uh, lesser than the servant. Rather, that the servant is underneath the master. And so then he also brings in here that the messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Again, if, if a, someone, if a king sent a messenger out to deliver a message, and the messenger decided to tweak the message at all, there's no point in sending that messenger. You couldn't trust him. He's not greater than him. And so then Jesus also, I think, I think what he's getting at here is that because he has done this for you, if he as your authority figure has done this, should we not also do this for others? So then in verse 18, or, or sorry, verse 17, he says, if you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. And I think that sometimes in our North American culture, we get caught up with the blessing part there, thinking that this will be monetary blessings or that it'll be our, our own standings in the world around us, whether it's material things or, or relational things. And I think there's one commentator that, that uh, said, in essence, and I, I really like it, and it's more than just liking it. I think it's what it's getting at here, is that this blessing and this, this essence of being blessed is that we'll be happy if we do it. And I think, again, we have to be careful because we equate happiness often with having enough 
of what we want, not what we need. And so if we know these things, if we know that because Jesus has served us, we would serve others, then of course it makes sense that we would be happy if we are serving our Lord in this way by giving an example and living in his image. In verse 18, again, Jesus says that he knows who he has chosen and that the scripture will be fulfilled. And so what he's quoting here is actually Psalm 41, verse 9. And so it's quite literally being fulfilled here that the one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And he's speaking of Judas. Um, it's, it's quite fascinating because even within this passage, I think it's four times that it's mentioned that Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And yet he continues on and allows Judas to be present for this. I think it just shows so beautifully the authority of Jesus and that he knows what is going to happen regardless of how bad or twisted it might seem to us. And then at the end of the passage, he says that he he said these things, the, the Psalm 41 part there, that he has said this so that they would believe him, believe that he is, that he is the great I am. So he's showing that he has all things in his hand. Verse 20 closes us off for a passage, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, it's quite interesting, because as I was preparing, I went to Andrew at one point, and I was like, I can't believe that this didn't mean what I thought, and he was like, what? I definitely read it the way that it's meant to, so I don't know if it's just an experience thing or not, but I think it's important to know here in verse 20, when he says that whoever receives the one that I send receives me, he's not actually speaking about the Holy Spirit here. I think sometimes a singular would confuse us, and we would think that he's talking about whoever receives the Holy Spirit receives him, and whoever receives him receives the Father. But what he's actually talking about uh, within the context here is if, he if we or whoever receives the disciples, the one, any one of the disciples, receives him. So whoever takes the disciples' uh, message and accepts it would receive Christ. And whoever receives Christ would obviously receive the Father because Jesus is one with the Father, and he is pointing to him. So with a passage like this, we have foot washing, which like we explained is not something that we're overly used to, and we have a few other things in here that we might not fully understand what to pull from this. So what do we actually get from this as a church in 2022 where we don't wash each other's feet before every single meal, or where we don't necessarily know who's going to betray us or anything like that? I think there's two things that I want to focus on today from this passage. One is that the authoritative, sorry, the authoritative servanthood of Christ. And so what I mean by that is Jesus is in authority over us. Our world teaches and tells us that you need to be the master of your own life, that everything in this world needs to add up to make you propped up on your own throne. It's a common theme in scripture as well, if you'll look, that we are always trying to build our own version of our own Edenic state with us on the throne, no matter what we do. From which job you have, it needs to make sure that it is everything that you want. From your spouse, everything that you could ever want or desire or imagine. From your schooling, which place you go to for it, Everything, the vehicle you drive, the house you own, everything is meant to make you look good, meant for you to be the center of it. 
And we fall into this as Christians as well. We can't fool ourselves because I know if you guys are at all like me, it's easy to stumble into this of caring so much about ourselves. And I know that we use marriage examples a lot here, but a good example of this is for myself. I, I am married to Aaron. Um, and so I'll, I'll be working here throughout the week. And after I go to head home, oftentimes on the drive home, I have this idea kind of painted in my mind of what certain things are going to look like. And, and believe it or not, most of them often are about serving me. So I, I yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty horrible person. I'll go home and I'll think the dishes are going to be done. I'm going to have the garbage taken out. There's going to be clean dishes that when I go to get a snack after work, I'll be able to just sit down and rest. It'll be perfect. It'll be my Eden. Aaron will be there and ask me all the questions about how my day was and how wonderful it is. It's going to be great. And then I get home, and it's not like that. And it throws me for a loop because I've spent this considerable amount of time thinking about how well the things around me, the people around me, are going to serve me. I didn't even think when I come home that Aaron has been spending all day keeping our child alive. I haven't even thought about things that have been happening in her life or in her family or things that her friends have been going through. And so instead of coming into this position where I have an opportunity to serve my wife and love her well, as modeled by Jesus in this passage, by doing things that are extravagant and things that might not be expected, I spend my time trying to make sure that my version of Eden is propped up, that my version of Eden is what is existent. So I think what Christ shows us here is a completely upside-down version of that. Instead, we as followers of Christ, no matter what the relationship that we have with people is, we should be consistently looking for opportunities to serve. Service to others is how we show the love of Christ. Another good example of this, though, is that we are so twisted that we'll do this in the uh, cover of, of bringing a gift. So this is one that, that my wife pointed out to me again just recently. Our daughter, Gemma, is, is quite young, but she's going to be coming into the toddler years. And just recently, this year, I took a liking to hockey. Um, some of you guys are like, yeah, that's awesome. Others are like, I don't even know what that is. Anyways, I, I'd been following the Stanley Cup, and I, I quite enjoy watching the Oilers play. And, and so one day, I found out that they make little toddlers Oilers jerseys. And I love sitting down with my family to watch a hockey game, and I enjoy it very much. It's part of my Edenic state, so to speak, that I like to prop up. And so I texted Aaron about these jerseys the one day, and I was like, man, we got to get Gemma one of these jerseys. It'll be so good. And she called me out very quick on it and said, you have to admit, though, if we do that, you're doing it for yourself and not for Gemma. It's not actually a gift for her. And now that's a, that's a really small example. There's not much weight to it because it was one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's a good point. But I think this is something that's applicable to so many things in our lives. How often do we attempt to serve someone or do something under the guise of service when we secretly expect something back for that service that will prop us up more than the act of service prop them up itself? And this is so twisted because we see here that Jesus serves his disciples until the very end. He loved them until the end. And how did he do this? By serving, by taking up the place of a slave. 
blowing their expectations out of the water and serving them so well that they didn't even understand what was going on. I think this is what we're called to as Christians. When we serve others, it should be out of a heart to love them and to love Christ. This would be carrying his image well. It's a constant battle to make sure that our heart is in the right place when we're serving, that we don't become selfish or prideful in our acts. And so I want to encourage you guys that as we do this, Jesus is patient with us. A good example of this is when I was working for a different organization here in town, uh, there was a gentleman that was above us, and, and he had authority over all of the people here in Fort St. John, and he was a great leader, uh, highly respected, uh, and I had learned a lot from him, but he was human, and we all knew that. Uh, one day, at, at one of our establishments, somebody came in to use the bathroom, and I tell you, you would not even believe how horrible it was after this individual had used it. And so, of course, this, it's a relatively large organization that I was working for, and so there was janitorial staff, and there was other staff that would be able to clean this bathroom. But I tell you, the, the impact that it had on the staff at that organization when the person in charge put on the proper PPE and he went and cleaned that bathroom, serving as a custodian, which often I think in our culture we look at as the lowest on the totem pole, and he cleaned it top to bottom for them so that not only could other people use it, but also the staff. And I tell you, that left a mark. Now, I didn't talk to him afterwards about what his ambitions were, but I also didn't hear him trying to prop himself up for having done it. But what I did hear is the people around who had heard that he had done this, praising him for it. And so then we as Christians, when we do acts of service like this, where nobody expects it and where maybe it shouldn't, technically speaking, in the political scale or in our worldly scale, scale be us, it shows that we actually care. It's a great way to model Christ's love. And so I think the authoritative servanthood of Christ is shown here by he knew that he was going to die. It's stated explicitly multiple times in our passage today that he knew who was going to betray him, and yet he continued to serve as a slave. We don't even do it well if we're hungry. We don't even do it well if we're a little bit tired. And so I think that it's a great calling that when we see Christ's example here, like Romans 2, 12, 1 to 2 says, that we should offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice so that we'll know the will of God. And what is the will of God? We've heard before here, and we know that it is that we're sanctified, that we would become more and more like him. So that leads us to our second point. And that is one that I want to ask a question that we should all be asking ourselves. And that is, will we let Jesus wash our feet? And obviously, I don't mean literally, because he's not going to come here and wash your feet before you go to Boston Pizza or Wendy's or wherever you go. So what can I mean by this? I think we need to take a moment again and think about that imagery behind, well, not just the imagery, the practicality of washing feet. Every single time they would have walked somewhere for a meal to gather together, this was custom. And why? 
because they pick up dirt. You're sweaty, you pick up dirt naturally from the environment around you. Even if you try to avoid it, I, I'm sure you've noticed if you ever, if you care about your footwear at all and you've ever cleaned your shoes, chances are you've noticed you have to do it often. No matter how carefully you walk through the environments around you, you're going to pick up dust, you're going to pick up debris, you're going to step in something that you didn't see. And you'll be very aware of it afterwards, but you might not have seen it coming. And isn't this like us as Christians today? You know, when we decide to follow Christ, when we make that decision to, to call him Lord, we are made clean. We are justified in that moment. We are seen as righteous because Christ stands in front of us with his righteousness that we do not deserve. And he stands in front of us before God and shows his righteousness in place of our filth. And he washes us clean from sin and we will be presented as blameless before God. It sounds wonderful. It's true. But have you ever noticed that we as Christians still suck? We are not good. We are still consistently in need of reproof, of being molded into the image of Christ. And so I think what comes up here is the question of sanctification, like I said earlier. So Wayne Grudem uh, describes this in one of his books as such. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. And so what he means by this is that it is progressive in the sense that it takes time. It will continue to happen throughout your lifetime, and by the grace of God through his Holy Spirit, he'll continue to mold you into the image of his Son. But there's something else here that it takes effort on our part. It's not that our salvation is by works, by no means. Instead, it's that when Christ convicts you to do something, if you notice that you have sinned and you are living in sin, it takes your choice after that conviction to step out of it. Now, by the grace of God, we can. It's only by the grace of God that we can even choose that. But that's what Jesus is talking about here. And so why, would he, why else would he say that if we do not let him do this, we have no part in him? That might be a bit of a heart twister for us if we're used to living in sin and feeling convicted and choosing to do nothing about it. Because I think that as followers of Christ, if you truly have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will respond to this. You will respond to the call of Christ to be molded, to be more like his son. What breaks God's heart will break your heart as you become more and more molded to him. Which means that you will begin to sin less. It's not that we will ever walk free of sin. You can teach a kid not to step in dog poo, but chances are you as an adult have still done it every now and then when you didn't see it. So there are times that you will blatantly see sin coming for you, and you will have the choice to, to fall to temptation or to sin. Or there may be times that with the way humanity is and the way our minds are, you might not recognize how close you are or that you're already walking in sin. And so it's by the grace of God that we are saved from that, first of all. And second of all, that we would even be convicted that that's wrong. Like Ephesians 2.9 says, it's so that no man may boast that God has done this. God has done this so that none of us can look and say, look at how I have cleaned myself up. Look at how well I've done at making it so that I look like Jesus or so that I'm a good person. 
It's only by the power of Christ that we can be molded into his image. And so even though we may sin, Christ reigns supreme. And so I think as Christians in response to this of whether or not we'll let Jesus wash our feet, we have two responses to this. One of which we might not consider a response because we fall into it so naturally sometimes, but I believe that it is still a choice that we do this. And one is, is that we could ignore sin and ignore conviction. We can continue to live our lives as we have, continue to sin, continue to walk in whatever it is that we've been doing that we feel convicted of without any remorse and continue to let sin affect those around us. As in the foot washing example, sin reeks. Don't fool yourself. If you are living in sin, there are people that know about it. God knows about it. And so to sit at the table with Jesus, he must wash us. He cannot leave sin alone. Sin in its very nature is like a cancer, and if it is not dealt with, it will spread and it will destroy us. The other response that we have as Christians is that we can choose to let Jesus actually wash our feet, that we, can uh, that we can continue to repent of sin and continue to allow the Holy Spirit to make us degree by degree more like Christ. And so how do we do this? What does it actually mean to, to walk through something like this? And I believe it looks something like when Christ convicts you of something through the Holy Spirit, that your heart is so broken over your sin and not the consequence and that's an important distinction to make because if we're sad that there's consequences, it means we're still happy living in sin. We're sad that we can't do that anymore without a consequence. Our heart should break over the sin itself. Our heart should break for what God's heart breaks over. So then when we're caught living in sin and, and we feel convicted by the Holy Spirit, what that looks like is a 180 from that sin. That we would turn to Christ and worship Him and continue to live as he has shown us how. So in my own life, this has looked like many different things. Some of you will know that I have struggled with sexual addiction and, and pornography and everything that comes along with that. And I tell you, when, I, when in that moment when I felt Christ call me, when I knew that Christ was calling me back to himself, there was no question in my mind that that was something that would have to be dealt with. Not just that alone, there was not just a, well, maybe I can keep hiding this then and still follow Christ. And this goes for more than just sexual sin, greed, pride, covetousness, etc., etc. When we follow Christ, sin must be dealt with. We must surrender our lives to him. As living sacrifices, we live in service to others and not ourselves. So, I don't want to leave it on a downer, or on, maybe not a downer, but I don't want to leave it something hard like that. Not because it's not good to think about these things. We should feel convicted when we hear that sin is wrong and that we know that God does not want us to sin. We should feel convicted. If you're feeling convicted, that's a good thing. But what we should not do is revel in our own guilt. Guilt can be a healthy motivator for an instant, but it never brings lasting change. If we attempt to move 
on ourselves to say that, well, I feel guilty about this, I feel like God's convicting me, so I'm going to do all of this to make sure that I don't feel guilty again. It will not stick. Sanctification runs deeper than that. It's a very change of your heart. And so what that looks like then is if you're feeling convicted or feeling that moment of guilt that will turn you to Christ, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to turn to him. Pray and ask him that he'd forgive you for your sin and that you would continue to be molded to be like him, that he would give you strength to continue to live as he has called us to live. The Christian life is a hard life. But it's not without hope. We have, given, we have been given Jesus, the great high priest that intercedes for us and will complete the good work that he has started in us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Um, thank you so much for your word and that you are faithful to, to speak to us through your word. God, I, I pray that you would just continue to work in each one of our hearts. Father, I don't know where everybody's at today. Um, but Lord, if there is sin in our lives, I pray that you would help us to be ruthless with it, that we would continue to allow you to wash it clean from us, Lord. Thank you for the work that you have done on the cross, that it is finished, that we don't have to try to gain our salvation, or that we don't have to, to try and live by works that we might be clean enough, Lord. I thank you that we are viewed as righteous by you because of what Jesus has done. And that through that, through your blood, Lord, that we can continue to live and, and become more like you. So, Father, I pray for everyone as, as we go about our weeks. I pray that you would help us to serve one another well and that we would do it from a heart posture that is honoring to you, Lord. Yeah, thank you for today, and, and I pray that you'd bless everyone as we go from here. In your name I pray. Amen.